So, my favorite activity growing up, you might have guessed it from this, was uh, performing. Okay, I was in my first community theater, musical theater pro pro like show uh, at age seven, I believe, and I was hooked. I was totally hooked. From then on, I was pretty much always in some sort of show, which took me all the way through a theater program in college. And for many years, one of my favorite musicals and a show I actually had the great joy to uh, play an awesome role in was Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods. Okay, anyone know it? Into the Woods is this fun show that plays with traditional fairy tales. Okay, so I played Cinderella, but there's also Jack and the Beanstalk, Little Red Riding Hood, Rapunzel. Of course, every good medley of fairy tales also needs to have a witch. Um, and the play is structured so that all these stories, among some others, are like weaved together, and they all come to their happy resolution, the one we all know from hearing these stories as kids, at the end of the first act. They all seem to reach happily ever after. Some families that would bring their small children to our show would just like leave at the intermission, right? The kids thought that they hadn't missed a thing, that they'd seen the end. But what they didn't know was what came in the second act, okay? Act two in Into the Woods is life after ever after, okay? What happens when the wife of the giant that Jack slays comes looking for revenge? What happens when the prince who was so allured by the elusive damsel Cinderella finds her a bit less interesting once he's married to her? discovers there are other elusive maidens who could use, you know, a, a prince to rescue them. What happens when the barren baker's wife, who finally gets the long-desired baby with the help of the witch next door, is tragically killed through completely random circumstances, and the baker is now left a single father? Life the musical seems to argue, tends to be more complex than happily ever after would have us believe. I bring this up because today is Easter Sunday, the day that's celebrated as the highlight of the church calendar every year. It's a big day, rightly so, commemorating an astounding event that lies at the heart of Christian faith when Jesus became a bunny and he like laid these eggs, these magical filled with candy all over the world. April Fools. All right. But there is, right, in this holiday, I think a tendency, a risk of this holiday as it's actually told being a pretty happily ever after kind of event, right? We tell this story of Jesus coming to earth, entering into the humility and pain of being human, living amongst humans, eventually being betrayed, condemned by the very people he came to love and serve, suffering, brutal torture, death, bearing all the sins of humanity on himself through death on a cross. But on the third day, God rose him from the dead, exalting him into heaven, granting him and us eternal life. God won, Satan lost, the end. Humanity, at least Christians in this telling, live happily ever after. So let's put on our fancy dresses. Let's go find those eggs. Sound familiar? Except if God won... 
why is the world still so messed up? If God defeated violence and sin, why is it still so present with us? I mean, perhaps we know on some level it's not really that simple. But how often are we invited to really consider the complexity of the experiences that this Easter story everyone's telling today actually communicates? I think it's really easy to lean into the memeable, tweetable, simplest version of the story, right? So we just maybe get a little lazy and only do that. What cost does that come at? What of this story might we actually miss when we focus on this good news in this narrow way? What parts of the story do we exclude? What people, maybe some of us in this room, are left feeling like this is a story we can't connect with because it doesn't have room for the realities of our lives that might not line up easily with happily ever after in God. There's a phrase that's become a go-to in media and social media, I have noticed in recent years, when recognizing that not all questions can be answered in like a concise 140 character kind of way, okay? Not all stories can be told simply in the way social media often expects. Here's the phrase, it's complicated, right? What's your relationship status? Married, single, it's complicated. Healthcare policy, navigating immigration reform, the Facebook algorithms, it's complicated. As a person of faith, I feel this personally when it comes to issues of faith. People ask me, do you believe the Bible is true? Or worse, are you like an evangelical? And the most honest answer, if I'm pressed directly, is it's complicated. The truth is I've been living an active, personally chosen life of faith for about 20 years now. And the longer I've lived it, the more experiences of church, of theology, of scripture study, of ministry that I have had, been to seminary, the more I find the truth that when it comes to issues of faith, pat, simple answers generally don't get you very far. I think if we're willing to be truly honest about faith, it's complicated. Relating to a supernatural living God, if such a thing exists, that is complicated. Entering into a thousands-year-old story and somehow connecting it with the nitty-gritty of your life in a world that is in some ways similar, but in other ways night and day different from this, the world in which that story emerged, that is complicated. Some followers of Jesus, I think, find the complications tedious maybe even threatening. They want to make everything simple, straightforward. But for me, and I think many of the folks I've had the privilege of serving, acknowledging the complications, actually centering the paradoxes, is actually really helpful. Leaning into the reality that these concepts we're considering are inherently complex and mysterious. That allows us to move forward without needing to have all the answers. It allows us to bring our authentic questions, our doubts, our tensions to the conversation. Perhaps, perhaps it even allows us to encounter the divine in the middle of it. This is why today I'm beginning a new teaching series this Sunday that I'm calling 
It's complicated. Where we explore some of these puzzling paradoxes of faith and see how leaning into instead of away from the complexity actually might open up new insight and freedom for us in our journeys of faith. So today we're going to look afresh at this resurrection story with this lens, paying particular attention to the complicated paradoxes it might present and seeing where we might find some life by considering those more deeply. So will you read with me as we pick it up at the beginning of Luke chapter 24. Now on the first day of the week, at early dawn, the women went to the tomb, taking the aromatic spices they'd prepared, and they found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood beside them in dazzling attire, and the women were terribly frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has been raised. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then the women remembered his words. And when they returned from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told them these things to the apostles. But these words seemed like pure nonsense to them. And they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. He bent down and saw only the strips of linen cloth, and then he went home, wondering what had happened. So the story, as Luke tells it, begins at early dawn. Women coming from their villages. It's still dark out. From the city of Jerusalem, they come out to this hilly countryside where the cave is, in which Jesus had been buried, and they come looking for a body, a body they don't see. Instead, two beings that look like men in dazzling attire appear to them asking a provocative question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Now, I would imagine the premise of this question would be disorienting to them. I mean, these women have come to the place of death because they've experienced a death. They have not come looking for life. They have come to grieve, to find some sort of closure, peace, in the face of great loss. The verses right before this in Luke describe the way that these same women followed Joseph of Arimathea to that grave on Friday afternoon. They saw how the body was laid out. They noted where his head and his feet were placed. They saw how still his lifeless flesh lay on the slab. They saw the wounds that covered his brutalized body. They spent that sundown to sundown of Sabbath rest with those images of Jesus' broken body fresh in their minds. They wept. I'm sure they wailed trying to steady themselves for the work they still had to do 
as the sun began to lighten the sky on Sunday morning. And then they arrive, ointment in hand, but the body they had left not even 36 hours ago is gone. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, but has been raised. These divine messengers, these angels communicate this wondrous news to the women and the realization begins to dawn. Something spectacular must have happened. Theologian Jurgen Moltmann says, without women preachers, we would have no knowledge of the resurrection. Despite the fact that throughout history, including to this day in many places, many Christian leaders have believed that what I'm doing right now is not okay. It is wrong for women to preach, right? And yet, here, these women, by these angels, sent by God, are given this opportunity to be witnesses to what our faith understands as the most important event in human history. They're the first to witness and share that Jesus didn't stay dead. They're commissioned, despite the fact that in their patriarchal culture, their testimony wasn't even admissible as evidence in a court of law because of their gender. But there's also this sad reality in the resurrection account. The women are given this amazing role by the divine of first witnesses. And yet what comes of it? No one believes them. It's not even like they're speaking to a crowd of strangers. It's not like they're before a jury. These are the guys in their Jesus-centered community. They know these guys. They've been sharing meals together. They've been praying together. They have been encouraging one another, listening to Jesus preach, healing folks, embodying a more egalitarian way of being that Jesus called forth. And yet, with him gone in the wake of disaster and loss, what of that remains? These women experience the wonder of Easter morning. They run to, know, to where they know the guys are gathered. They're friends. They're brothers. They breathlessly tell them what they've seen, and not a single one believes them. The words seem like pure nonsense, Luke says. How disheartening is that? Jesus is raised, but the witnesses of the fact they didn't even get to see him. They just see that he's not there. They see the angels. The women are given the honor of witnessing to the resurrection, but their friends don't believe them. Easter. It's complicated. Let's go on a little further. Picking up with verse 13. Now that very day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and debating these things, Jesus himself approached and began to accompany them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Then he said to them, what are these matters you are discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, what things? The things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. A man who with his powerful deeds and words proved to be a prophet before God and all the people. 
and how our chief priests and rulers handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Not only this, but it's now the third day since these things happened. Furthermore, some women of our group amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning. When they didn't find his body, they came back and said that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. So he said to them, you foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. So they approached the village where they were going. And he acted as though he wanted to go further. But they urged him, oh, stay with us, because it's getting toward evening, and the day is almost done. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had taken his place at the table with them, he took the bread. He blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And at this point, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Then he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he was speaking with us on the road? while he was explaining the scriptures to us. So here in this part of the story, Luke gives us his first glimpse of the risen Jesus. Right? This is the first appearance in Luke of Jesus after. And it's like an interesting first picture, right? Because here he is, and his friends don't know him. Somehow, something about him is different. Luke says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, we don't really know exactly what that means. Do they not recognize him because he somehow looks different? Do they not recognize him because, like, some spiritual magic force is at work to blind them? Is it some of both? I don't think it really matters, the mechanics of the issue. What matters is the essential point. Jesus has come, but his own followers don't recognize him. He is risen. He is with them. And they can't see him. They can't see it. They may feel this inexplicably like thing that's drawing them to this supposed stranger, right? They feel that. The stranger who they are on the one hand stunned because he like seems to not have an idea what's been happening in Jerusalem. And yet at the same time, he understands the scripture and the way that Jesus has fulfilled it more than anyone they've ever encountered. And yet they still don't get that it's him. Perhaps this is Jesus in April Fool's mode. You know, you kind of get the sense that he's kind of playing with this sense of mystery. Like he kind of enjoys it. He's like pretending not to know what's been happening. Oh, tell me. I don't know. What is it? What are these things? He like fakes them out as he's going to Emmaus. Like, oh, I got somewhere to go. Pretending he has somewhere else to be. And they're like, oh, please, please, please stay with us. Right? So weird. And then, there he is, breaking the bread. And somehow, in that moment, as he's breaking bread with them, it dawns on them who he is. And the moment they finally get it, poof, he disappears, like a a wizard disapparating in Harry Potter. Boom, gone. (laughs) Weird, right? It's weird. He's with them, he's gone, he's alive, but things have changed. It's complicated. 
So let's just put these things together a little bit. What do we learn about the complexity of resurrection in these two parts of the story? I'm going to draw out a couple of ideas. First is that resurrection is only possible after loss. For there to be resurrection life, there must first be death. Resurrection only comes after loss. Yes, the women were the first to see that the body was gone, to see angels, to spread the word Jesus had risen, making a way for women preachers like me. But this came after they suffered the trauma of witnessing his brutal execution, of seeing him laid to rest, of losing him. That is the reality of resurrection. It is new life, but it comes in a very bittersweet way. Life through loss. The one does not neutralize the other. My younger sister, Mandy, is about three years younger than me, and she's one of the most precious people to me in the world, and she's also what is called nowadays a rainbow baby. She was born after my mom suffered a miscarriage. I was too young to know at the time to remember the loss, my other sibling. But my mother knew it was heartbreaking for her, as miscarriages usually are. In time, my mother did conceive again. And my sister came into our life, and yet that reality, the reality is there, that her life would not have happened if there had not first been a loss. The life and the loss are connected. One coming doesn't wipe out the other. There can still be joy in welcoming new life as grief at what has been lost remains. They're both part of the experience. I think in an, on a national scale, we might be in a resurrection kind of moment that we can see in lots of different places, but I'll just highlight one of the most recent. Last Saturday, our family, amongst many others, went to Oakland to join with the mass demonstrations happening around the world. I think we have a picture following the lead of the Parkland, Florida teens in protesting gun violence and demanding reasonable gun control. This is a movement being born in the wake of profound loss. And let's be honest, a lot of profound loss, not just in Florida. But without the horrible February 14th massacre, of 17 students and staff at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High, there would be no Parkland teens to follow. That wouldn't be a thing. There would be no March for Our Lives. The loss and life are connected. One doesn't negate or neutralize the other. There is grief at the loss, even as a new moment comes into life. I think of Emma Gonzalez at that rally, standing on stage, holding the crowd for the six minutes and 20 seconds that it took the assailant to brutalize their school, just weeping. It was a moment of power, of empowerment, something being born. It was a moment of profound grief. It was both. I've often said that starting Haven was my most clear experience of resurrection. 
For those of you who don't know my story, I'll just quickly summarize a few bullet points. I came to faith as a college student studying theater in Chicago. By the time I was in my mid-20s, engaged to Jason, I believed that God was speaking to me about someday helping start a faith community, a church for people like me, people who maybe didn't fit the mold of a lot of other churches, but who wanted an authentic connection with a living God and people to nurture with that with. Eventually, that would lead me to go to seminary, to move to another city, to take a job as a worship pastor while I trained to someday lead a community like this. I was in a movement of churches, and all along the way, I believed I would start a community that would be part of that movement of churches. But I also increasingly came to understand that the community I felt called to start had to be fully LGBTQ inclusive. In 2013, a year before I finished seminary and hoped to move to Berkeley to start something, it became clear that the group of churches I was a part of would not bless me to start a queer inclusive church. I couldn't stay in that spiritual family that had nurtured me for decades, over a decade, and move forward. The dream that I had been nurturing for over a decade to be a part of that movement and to start a community like this, that died. It died. And it was a painful loss. I lost relationships that were deeply significant to me, particularly with pastors, mentors, who have been profound in shaping my journey of faith and my journey to ministry. It was devastating. But in the wake of that dream dying, I found like those angels at the tomb. I felt like God's messengers were still speaking to me, still commissioning me. I sensed the Spirit inviting us to still move to California. We didn't have anyone to come with us. We didn't have any group we would be attached to. I wasn't sure who would ever gather with us. And yet, as we arrived in the East Bay, connections I couldn't ever have predicted or foreseen began to emerge. People began to gather in our living room with a desire for a haven, a safe place that a diverse group of people might encounter Jesus together. And something new was born in the wake of loss. In that way, I think Haven is a resurrection community. So that's the first point. Resurrection is only possible after loss. Second point is that resurrection brings life. But it is different. It's a different kind of life than what came before. We see that in the story, right? One little clue that we probably missed is that Luke uses the term Lord Jesus. Oh, this is a little Bible nerd clue. Um, for the first time in this passage, this is the first time we've heard him call him Lord. Right? It's just a little nod, a little indicator from the author. Something is different. Okay? He's not just Jesus the friend. He is Jesus the Lord, and that's awesome. But it's also a change, particularly for those who knew him as Jesus their buddy not Jesus the Lord. Jesus is now unrecognizable to them when they see him. 
Their connection with him is different. And let's be honest, it's never going to be the same. Because resurrection is not the same as resuscitation. Okay, we've seen that in the New Testament. That's a thing. Jesus brings someone, some people back from the dead. He did it a couple times. Most famously, Lazarus, who'd been in the tomb for days, brings him out. And Lazarus's life just kind of goes on as it has been. He's the same as he was before. It's a resuscitation. Okay? He's, he's the same flesh. Nothing has really changed. It's just like as if it didn't happen. Right? Lazarus, but he's also like, th- there's the thing that's different about resurrection. is this resurrection that Jesus is living. It's like, a new kind of life, entering an old kind of reality. Lazarus had the old reality. He would be with his family and friends going forward, maybe another decade or two or more, but eventually he's going to age and die again for good, right? Jesus, it's different. He can no longer be with his friends as he was before. They can't just like wander over to his tent or whatever they lived in, his hut, his small house. They can't, like, laugh around the dinner table with him in the same way. They're not just going to walk along the road to Emmaus most days. It's going to be different. But in some way, through the Spirit, he's more available to them than he'd ever been. He becomes available to us in a way he never could have been. But it's different. I'm profoundly grateful for this community that's being formed here at Haven. It's been a huge blessing to me in so many ways. It's also different than some of the communities I was a part of before. I have friendships that are being formed that are going to be really significant. And I also miss profoundly the friendships I no longer have. And they're different. It's not better or worse, but it is different. And I think sometimes we do ourselves a disservice when we don't allow that to be true. We don't allow ourselves to name it and to name the challenges of that. Here's my third thought on resurrection from this story. That God is uniquely available to us in the place where loss and life meet. That's the hope of resurrection. The truth is, I think God is much more comfortable with these tensions we're going to be talking about this series than we are. I don't think God is an either-or kind of God. If the Trinity is to believe, be believed, God is like not only both and, but maybe like both and and, right? There is significant capacity within the divine to hold all of these tensions. That is what the mystery of the incarnation is all about, that God could be above and beyond the finiteness of our human experience and yet somehow enter into it in a real way, becoming finite and human. It's it's a mind-boggler that Jesus could hold within himself humanity and yet still an essence of the triune God, that God could recognize that God could only fully connect with humanity whose story is tangled up between loss and life by entering the tangle, by experiencing loss. 
This means that our experiences of loss, of hopelessness, of doubt, of fear, aren't minimized by the divine. They connect us with the divine. I believe God actually wants to meet us in our places of loss. We don't have to leave our grief at the door. We don't have to leave our cynicism, our anger, our fear to pursue faith. It's part of the conversation. Instead, resurrection seems to offer that God can enter our loss and bring something new to it. The raw resurrection hope that loss is not the end. As we walk a road with Jesus, like those men heading to Emmaus, as we share what troubles our hearts, as we receive the bread of comfort that he breaks and hands to us, shockingly, our eyes can begin to open to a new reality, that there is life after death. Amen? There is life. After death, hope is born where there was once only despair. There is life after death in this age, yes, and even more in the age to come. That is the hope. Jesus' resurrection pointing to, inviting us to hope in a life like his that is caught up in the divine, where someday we will find only love and life and no longer loss. Jesus' resurrection is the taste of that new day that is still straining to dawn, a day where we have only resurrection, no longer lost. That's a hope we're looking towards. But while we wait for it, I believe Jesus wants to meet us in the tension of life and loss. I believe he understands it like no one else can because he's lived it, he's experienced the loss, and also the new life. Jesus, this human face of the divine, wants to be with us in the complicated. So as we end, I just want to invite us to engage with the Spirit in this tension of loss and new life. Truthfully, I think most of us are probably more comfortable at any given moment with one of those, right? With connecting to either, ugh, loss, cynicism, pain, fear, doubt, or like, I want to stand in the victory. I want to stand that it has happened, it is done. I can just put my faith in that and not worry about the hard stuff. So just take a moment to think about which one do you feel like? What are you, where are you coming in? What's your temperature gauge? Do you feel like it's easier to connect with the death part or the life part? And I'm just going to invite you into a moment of meditation and prayer. You can close your eyes, you can keep them open, whatever's going to help you to connect. And Spirit, I just invite you to be with us in those places where we feel uh, challenged by the tension. For those of us who find it easier to think, you know what, God won, it's done, I can just stand in that, what would it mean for us to acknowledge places of pain and loss in our life. Would you encounter us there, Jesus? Would you make it a safe space for us to allow those to also be true? 
Would we sense your presence inviting us into that? For those of us who are more prone to the cynicism, the skepticism, are in touch with our loss, God, we invite you to allow the hope of the Easter story to invite us to welcome the joy, the hope of new life. How might we receive your bread of comfort? How might you want to open our eyes to the hope that this is not the end? Where are you inviting us to see you? We thank you, Jesus, that in you, in resurrection, in the Easter Sunday, we can grieve and we can say he is risen. He is risen indeed. And stand in the hope of that truth. Amen. Amen.